we are back in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. We're going to go down to verse 10. Beginning in verse 8, down to verse 10. This is what the Word of God says. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord, which, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you now and we ask for your blessing We ask for your help, Lord, and we recognize, Lord, from this text, our need to be whole, to be complete, to be spiritually mature, and we ask that you would guide us and lead us, and for our own personal sanctification, Lord, I ask that we would glean from your word, that we would see glorious things, marvelous things from your law, and that, Lord, as we read your word, that you would, by your Spirit, bring us into conformity, do that mysterious, marvelous spiritual work of not just having us to know your word, Lord, but to be transformed by it. We don't want to be those that have a form of godliness, Lord, but deny the power of it. We want to to experience the power of your word through the power of a changed and transformed life. Father, would you work in our church? Would you transform us as we are exposed to your word every week, every Lord's day as we come here? May you please open up our hearts and minds, Lord. Make us pliable and sensitive and make us responsive to your word. Open up our heart and break away any calluses, any walls, any hardness and make us responsive to your truth, Lord. We pray these things in the marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are quickly approaching the end of the book, and uh, when it comes to understanding any book of the Bible, uh, what I've learned through studying the end of 2 Corinthians is the valuable lesson that you should always understand the end of a book if you're going to be studying the book and going back to the beginning. Um, Just when you study any book of the Bible, it's a good idea to read the whole book all the way through and then reread and reread the book. Because it's oftentimes when you have a panoramic view of what's going on in the book that you'll know how to interpret the book from the beginning. And so it is with this, this letter, 2 Corinthians. When we get to the end here, what we're realizing is that the whole book, we could say the whole book is written for the purpose of bringing this church back into fellowship with Paul And further than that, to bring the local church to a place of maturity, spiritually speaking. And so, quickly, I want to consider this whole idea of spiritual maturity for a church. And I want to begin by looking at the context of that maturity. What is the context of spiritual maturity? Well, it's just like spiritual maturity in our own lives. The context is immaturity. People that need to mature are people who are immature, And that's where Corinth is at. They are spiritually immature in many areas. They're spiritually, we could say, deficient because even though they have a ton of light, they have a lot of 
understanding and they have a lot of gifts. If I can quote Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. Many commentators have pointed out that those are probably some of the slogans that were trickling around the church in Corinth, claiming to be extraordinarily gifted. And certainly they were, because charismatic activity and charismatic phenomenon was abundant in the Corinthian church. But the church can be filled with all of these graces, and that's what we learn from this book, is that the church can abound with a lot of these things. They can have all sorts of emotional experiences. They can have all kinds of theological knowledge and controversy. They can have all kinds of church gatherings going on, powerful preaching, eloquent preaching, but they can still be immature. The context of the church's need for maturity, therefore, is Paul's apostolic authority or the lack thereof. This is why the church needs to grow into completion. They have to grow into spiritual maturity by coming back into the apostolic order. Maturity is God's will for every church. And that is to say, every church has to have a direction. You have to be going somewhere as a church. And really, under the leadership, it has to have a vision for spiritual maturity in every area of life. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just to see this, that when God saves us, He doesn't save us to stay the same. Uh, if you don't want people invading your life or coming into your personal space, then you will not like the church. If you want a type of Christianity where you're kind of a lone ranger that does his own thing or her own thing, if you want to sit in the back with very low commitments to the church, if you don't want to get too involved, if you don't want to get your hands and feet dirty, then I tell you what, the biblical uh, portrait of a church will not be appealing to you. And that's sad because this is God's design for us. God's design in saving anyone is to bring them into the church, full integration into the body of Christ for the purpose of making you more like Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, we get the entire panoply here. This is the whole scheme of spiritual maturity. If you want to know what it means to be spiritually mature in the context of the local church, this is your passage. This is the passage that we always look at in church membership because church membership entails these things. Let's walk through it slowly. He says that Christ gave some, some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some as pastors and teachers uh, verse 12 gives us the purpose, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. There's that language of edification, building up, maturity. Then he capitalizes on that in verse 13 and following. He says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You want to talk about descriptive language. I mean, that's adjective piled upon adjective piled upon adjective to describe to us what is the picture or the portrait that God wants to see in the church. You know what it is? It is the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? It means that the church over time and by the grace of God 
we are to reflect something of the maturity of Jesus Christ. As we look at his person, as we look at his work, his example, his holiness and his piety, that we would fill up in ourselves that same example. He says, as a result, look at the benefits. As a result, we are no longer to be children. That's the opposite of spiritual maturity. Is spiritual infancy. You know, we don't, we're not to be children anymore. And when he talks about being a child, it's unapologetically theological. Look at what he says. That we're not tossed here and there by the waves and carried, ab- carried about by every wind of doctrine. So mark number one that you're spiritually maturing. You have a solid theological foundation to where you are not easily blown over by the doctrinal trends and the theological trends that blow through the church. But you are like the blessed man of Psalm 1. You are firmly grounded, rooted. Your roots go down deep into the source of all spiritual nutrient. He says, we are not deceived by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We can go on and on there to look at uh, Paul's portrait there in Ephesians 4 of spiritual maturity, But here he gives us different elements, several factors from this very text as to how we can achieve this spiritual maturity. Number one, there there must be a conformity to the truth. Look at verse 8. He says, for we can do nothing, back in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 8, he says, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. So again, just as he emphasizes in Ephesians The first step towards maturity is theological. It is doctrinal. And sadly, today in the church, doctrine is looked down upon. Doctrine has been relegated to the realm of pride and arrogance. It's amazing, isn't it, that in our postmodern world, what we're being taught and what's seeping into the church is that the more you claim to know, the more arrogant or prideful you're going to appear. Well, that's almost the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we ought to be equipped grounded, that we're to be able to rightly divide God's word, God's truth. And therefore, it always begins with the truth. This is where so many churches go astray. Maybe two examples would be like the Pentecostal circles and the emergent circle. Maybe the quintessential example of this would be Pentecostalism and, 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 and church models like the emergent church. The emergent church, for example. I mean, one is emphasizing emotionalism. The other one is emphasizing community or psychology or psychology or a certain sociology. But what's, what's amazing about the emergent church is that they've eliminated any sort of true biblical knowing. They've eliminated biblical epistemology. We can use that word. That's a big fancy word. It just means how you know the things that you know. They eliminate doctrinal uh, uh, dogma. They, they would say that, that the church is to gather around in circles or couches. or I've seen services, emergent church services, where they eliminate the pulpit because it's offensive and it speaks of monologue and who wants a preacher to preach at them. You know, we're to gather, or gather around in a circle and share our thoughts with one another, no one having a better thought than the other. 
that we're just to be an amalgamation of ideas where all of our thinking is in flux and we have no solid foundation on anything. And so they try to reinvent everything and they use words like reinvent, reimagine, reconstruct doctrine. And so one emergent church went so far as to reinvent what it meant to take the Lord's Supper. So they took the Lord's Supper with a DJ and with Kool-Aid and chips to reinvent or reimagine or recontextualize themselves in the modern age. That, my friends, is a sad example of the opposite, the exact opposite of what Paul's teaching. Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement oftentimes, sadly, de-emphasizes doctrine. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. They de-emphasize the value of doctrine and they elevate the value of experience so that as long as you're having experiences with God, emotional, as long as you're getting emotional in the worship service, then you have grown spiritually and you have benefited spiritually. But that's really not the the portrait that Scripture gives us. The Bible tells us, be sober-minded And Paul told the Corinthians earlier on that it was a shame that they did not have knowledge of God. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. It was a shame for them that some some among their number had no knowledge of God at all. Some were no doubt unregenerate. Others were deficient in their theological training. And so the word here that Paul uses the truth. We can do nothing against the truth. Isn't that just an amazing statement? It's just marvelous because what it tells me is if we take the word the truth to be somehow or somewhat synonymous to his earlier reference to the faith in verse 5 where he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And then he says we can do nothing against the truth. Articular truth means it's a specific, specified truth. And most commentators point out that it's probably in relationship to the gospel truth. We can do nothing against Paul's apostolic gospel. We can do nothing against the evangelical truth. Now, that's encouraging for us in many ways. Number one, it's encouraging that God's truth will never be overcome. It cannot be overpowered. You can deride it. You could disagree with it. You could object to it. But you will never overthrow it. God's truth will always prevail. You can do nothing against it. Even if you spend your whole life fighting against it, you won't accomplish a single thing against the truth of God's Word. The only thing you can do is propagate it. We can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. In other words, we can only conform to the truth. You can disseminate the truth. You can teach the truth. You can spread the truth. You can advance the truth. You can promote the truth. But you certainly will never take away from the truth. And you will die trying. And many people have. Many atheists will die grinding their axe away at God in futility. But they will never, ever accomplish a single thing against the truth. The gospel is the truth that Paul's whole ministry is built on. And as a matter of fact, Paul calls the gospel the truth several times. Several times. In, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, not only did his doctrine, was his doctrine rooted in truth, but also his deeds, his deeds. He says, we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 2. He says, not walking in craftiness 
or adulterating the Word of God, which means you're handling the Bible for the purpose of money. He says, we don't do that. He says, but we, by the manifestation of the truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul endured everything that he endured in the ministry, as he says in chapter 6, verse 7, for the truth. He equates the gospel in, chapter, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, verse 13, to the truth, the truth of the gospel, the gospel of our salvation. Paul claimed that the truth of Christ was in him, in him, chapter 11, verse 10. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons or one of the ways that you're going to know whether or not you're truly in conformity to the truth is whether or not you're willing to stand with the truth. And not only that, it means that not only are you to guard the truth, entrust yourself to the truth, but also reject anything that's not the truth. That's oftentimes a very uh, a telling litmus test for someone whether or not they really truly love the truth. It's one thing to say, I will, I will support the truth, I will support my church, I will support what's going on in the church and Christianity. But when it comes to rejecting other presentations of the truth, that's usually where people's conviction falls short. Turn, me, uh, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 makes it very clear. It even puts obligation. It puts the onus on the Christian that you are in relationship to the truth, not just called to defend the truth, but you are called outright to renounce false presentations of the truth of the gospel. You know this passage, Galatians 1.6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace or by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Very interesting construction. He is to be accursed is actually an imperative in the Greek language. It means you are obligated to acknowledge that this person, this false teacher, is under God's curse. I mean, that's heavy. I mean, in our postmodern, politically correct world, we don't ever want to announce anybody accursed. But I tell you what, when the cults come, when the false teachers appear on television and they present a different gospel, they are under God's anathema. That's what the word is, anathema. It means to be damned by God. Uh, these words are hard but when you're dealing with eternal truths, as one theologian has pointed out, there is nothing worse than being the agent of a person's eternal destruction. And so heresy is, 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 is really serious. Heresy has to be confronted uh, with, all, with all force and with all conviction. Like Paul says in, later on in Galatians, that not even for an hour do we yield to a heretic. Not even for a moment do we put up with someone's heresy. John told the church, don't, in, don't even allow a person into your home. Invite them in to give them a platform to spread their heresy. We're not to fellowship with uh, false gospels. 
That doesn't mean that we can't dialogue with people. That doesn't mean that we can't engage in apologetical conversations. That doesn't mean that we can't reach out to our loved ones. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't go and witness to every unsaved person and every cult and every world religion. Oh, we should. But when it comes to synchronizing these things with the Christian faith, it is absolutely forbidden. And so the very first thing we need to do is come into conformity with God's truth. The second thing is that there needs to be a complete maturity process. Look at verse 9. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete, that you be made complete. So whether it was the truth of the gospel or the truth of Paul's integrity in the service of the gospel, Paul was confident that he stood in the truth. And the truth was this, that his whole life was lived for the benefit of others. And that's true biblical leadership there. Sacrificed. It was a sacrificial life for Paul. He says, we rejoice when we are weak, but you are strong. And so his life reflected the integrity of a sound ministry by virtue of his willingness to lay down his life. You want to talk about being Christ-like, Paul was willing to lay down his life for his sheep, and he would even go so far as to say, look, a good, a biblical leader must do this gladly, with joy. He says that in chapter 12, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And then he says, if, you, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And the fact that he asks that question, am I to be loved less, shows that there is to be a partnership between Paul and the church. That's what all of this is going to. He hopes to draw them into his love by sacrificing for them and being spent, or as he says in Philippians chapter 2, when he says that he is being poured out like a drink offering on the service of their faith. His whole life was spent. We're just studying in Acts. Paul is imprisoned because of the gospel. He is imprisoned for bringing the gospel to the churches of Asia, for the Gentile churches all around the Roman world. He's being poured out for them, and ultimately he would be martyred in the service of their faith. From Paul's perspective, you want to talk about having a proper view of what leadership is in the church. Leadership is a priestly duty. Paul sees himself in Romans chapter 15, verse 16. He calls himself a priest. And so in one sense, I guess we can say we do need a priest. (laughs) We need a priest like this. We need someone to view the ministry as offering up a a service of worship to God. He says to be a minister, he says in Romans 15, 16, that he was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He says, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may be, become acceptable, that it might be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So just as Paul wanted to be a good priest to God, he also wanted the church to be a good offering, one that was pleasing in God's sight, and that's what maturity is all about. This is why Paul is interceding for the church. He says, I also pray that you be made complete. Now, the word complete here is very interesting. There are several words in the Greek New Testament that speak of completion. This one has the idea of restoration, of bringing something back that is out of sorts, 
of bringing things together that were once in a good condition and have fallen apart. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that their relationship needs to be mended together, needs to grow and to be restored. It's actually found in the Gospels of the disciples when they're mending their nets. They need to mend their relationship with Paul. But it also means that you are coming to maturation. So there's a maturing, ripening process in the Christian life. That's what we're to do. And so Paul is hoping that the church would avoid church discipline. That's the context as well, is church discipline. That they would pass the test and be in the faith. That they would return to a devotion to Christ and to the gospel, chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. And then that all of this would be expressed through the health and the unity of the church. Because if you look at chapter 12, in verse 20, the church is in complete chaos. This is a church in chaos. There are all sorts of problems in the church. There's jealousy, strife, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Wouldn't you want to go to a church like that? (laughs) Probably not. You say, people look at a church like that and they're like, I got enough churches, I got enough problems. I don't need the church's problems on top of my problems because that's not the way a church ought to be. A church should be united. And so, In verse 10, he cultivates their spiritual growth by giving us um, these, these factors here. He says in verse 10, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am present I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So verse 10 really paves the way for their spiritual growth and for ours. There are three factors that I want to point out as far as the path to spiritual growth. There is dealing with sin, authority, and edification. Number one, there has to be a repentance of sin. they got to deal with the sin in their midst. If a church fails to deal with the sin in its midst, it will never grow. It will always be stunted. It will always fall short of what God intended it to be. And we know if you look back to chapter 12, verse 21, there was a problem of impenitent sin. That is to say, the church was tolerating people to live in sin. I only mention this because... I know this from experience. I can't even believe it, but I know this from experience, that there are those churches that will allow their members, the the people that attend the church, to live openly in sin. How many times during a membership process have I heard people say, I went to this church and and the pastor was in sin and everybody knew it and they just allowed it to be so. I had, one, uh, I had one family once tell me that they went to a church where the pastor was, was, was known to sleep around in the, with members of the congregation, and nothing ever happened. My friends, let me make this as clear and loud as clear as I can. That is not a church. That might be a religious gathering. That might be a, a place where you go and network. It might serve as a good dating service, but it is not a church, biblically speaking. God has no reference he has no esteem for any church that will allow and 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 allow sin to persist in the church i've mentioned this so much to us that church discipline is a forgotten doctrine it's like a pillar a foundation of the church of the early church that has just all but vanished from the landscape 
Pastors don't want to get sued. Churches don't want to appear mean. People don't want to, be, people don't want to turn others away. And so they eliminate the language of excommunication. They eliminate the language of church discipline. I had a pastor tell me that very thing. Why would I discipline anybody out of the church? The whole purpose of the church is to reach people. And what that person has said is, I am smarter than God, and I know how to run a church better than God does. That's basically what you've said. Because God commands the church to operate under his authority. So the very first thing that needs to happen is they need to deal with sin. When Paul says that he was absent, what he means is that his absence is an opportunity for the church to deal with sin. That's the time they have. That's the opportune time. That before he comes, they get their house in order. So that when he comes, as he says, I don't need to use severity. That's reference to, spirit, to, to church discipline. So that when I come, I don't need to discipline anybody. Because as he says earlier, earlier in, the, uh, in the book, he says that if he came again in that manner, he said in, ver- in chapter 13, verse 2, that he would not spare anyone. He wouldn't show any favoritism. He tells uh, Timothy Do everything without partiality. Don't recognize anybody. Don't favor the rich people in your church. Don't favor your family members in your church. Don't favor those you think are more spiritual in your church. Don't favor other leaders in the church. Do everything as it were with the blindness of justice. And just execute discipline however it has to be in order for the church to survive. Church discipline always presents an ultimatum to the church. That's what church discipline is. It is the grace of God giving the church an ultimatum that it can either repent or rebel. And if it repents, it can repent to its joy. But if it rebels, it can rebel to its destruction. And that's exactly the way it is in our lives. When God convicts us of sin and breaks conviction into our lives, we can either repent or rebel. And if we rebel, we will rebel to our own spiritual demise. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul tells the church this, the same ultimatum. He says, when I come to you, what do you desire? That I come with a rod? The word there is a whip. It's like a parent telling his child, do you want me to come in that room with my belt? Or do you want me to come in there loving you tenderly? He says, or do you want me to come to you in love in the spirit of gentleness? Gentleness. He tells the the church here, he says, look, I'm either going to come to you with the gentleness of Christ or I'm going to come to you with severity. So the very first thing that needs to be dealt with is sin. Sin is the great growth stopper. Sin will stunt your growth quicker than anything else. Secondly, there also has to be a recognition of authority. And this he points out when he says that While he was absent, he need not use severity, notice, in accordance with the authority which the Lord had given him. The Lord gives his ministers authority in the local church to execute discipline. And that's exactly why Paul would tell other ministers like Titus. He tells them in Titus 2.15, he says the things that, these things, he says, speak these things, exhort reprove with all authority. And he says, let no one disregard you. 
Timothy, Titus, young pastors that would surely be tempted and intimidated by the church not to act out in the God-given authority. But Paul is telling them, look, if you'd be a good minister of Christ, if you'd be a good steward of the mysteries of Christ, you need to act out in your authority and you need to let no one disregard that authority. Because really, ultimately, it's God's authority. The church is instructed to follow in the same direction, to recognize God's authority over his leaders or invested in his leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. So here's a question for when you meet people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Really? So how in the world could you possibly obey the Bible? I mean, the Bible says, this is a command, it's not a suggestion, You are to obey your leaders and to submit to them. So the question is real simple. If you don't go to church, what leaders are you submitted to? And this is speaking in the context of elders of the church. And so it is impossible to live a life obedient to God. So when someone says, oh, I'm not part of a church, but I am a Christian, that's an oxymoron. That's an oxymoron. That's like saying, I'm a mechanic, but I I don't go to a garage. I'm a mechanic, but I don't pick up tools. I'm a doctor, but I don't step foot in the hospital. How, how can those things be? They can't. They cannot. Although there are many reasons for a church to fail and fail to submit to its leaders, valid reasons why leaders can cause their churches to stumble. Oftentimes, it stems from people not acknowledging their divine authority, the fact that This is an authority that is given by the Lord. Now, I want you to look closely at this phrase. Paul says that this authority, this severity, is in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me. And so there's two things. There's power and privilege. On the one hand, biblical leadership, it comes with great authority, great power, great influence, you know, it's such a weighty thing. I was just reading last night, The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. It's such a, uh, such a daunting work. It's such an uh, uh, immense and powerful work. It has actually been the source of convincing many a would-be preacher out of the ministry because of the weight that's involved in being put in that position. And there comes great authority great responsibility, great influence over people's lives. You're telling people in the church, especially as a pastor, you have the power to tell people this is what God's will is. This is what God's word says. This is how you should look at the Bible. This is the way that you should interpret spiritual matters. There's great, great accountability that comes with that and a great influence. And therefore, you need to be one, as Paul says, to be able to rightly divide the word of truth, not a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. If you don't know how to handle the word of God, how are you going to be able to instruct people out of it? You can't. But at the same time, on the other hand, it is all God-given, just like he says. The authority, no doubt, we don't undermine that word, authority. We have to feel the full weight of that. But then you also have to feel the full weight of the word gave. The Lord gave that authority. It is a gift. In other words, God can give it and God can take it away. I said to the men at, up in Mexico, in Guadalajara, I told them as they were asking, 90% of their questions was about how do I get in the ministry. And one of my, um, one of my answers to a question that was asked is I said, look, 
being a pastor is not a right. You don't have a right to be a pastor. It is a privilege. It is a gift. It is a grace. God can give it to you, and he can take it away just like that. God lifts one up, and he tears one down. He promotes, and he brings another one low. So in that sense, the minister is nothing other than a mouthpiece. This is the way God's designed it. The preacher is nothing but God's spokesman through which the oracles of God are funneled like a contour, like a pipe that's funneling water. It's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are nothing but ambassadors, representatives. We stand in the place of Christ. We, we hand over His Word. We are committed with the mysteries of God. We're nothing but stewards. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, look, you're a steward. You're someone that God appointed to hold on to something and take care of something. Guard this. This has been entrusted to you. Don't blow it. <laughs> That's why Paul tells Timothy, look, guard the deposit, which is a reference to the gospel in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Guard the deposit, verse 20. It's been entrusted to you. This is like, a, this is like precious treasure that's been given to you. This is a commodity that is more invaluable than anything you can think of. Guard it because this is, this is God's eternal trust and it's been handed to you. Be a good steward of it. And so we have to feel the tension of both of those things. And as a matter of fact, this is the way that we got to look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul teaches the church how to look at this whole idea of ministry. He says in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And there, in the context, it's talking about comparisons of ministries, like Paul and Apollos. He says, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, all ministry is is given. It's a gift. It's a grace. We receive it by, by the sovereign grace of God. And then lastly, not only, therefore, do we need to deal with sin, we need to recognize authority, and I hope you guys um, are, are appreciating the, 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 the theology that God has given us of authority. It's so, it's so balanced. It would be one thing for God to say, look, listen to your leaders, end of story, submit to them without question. But no, God has made every one of us a priest and king to his God. We all have our own God-given conscience to lead us and to guide us so that the authority of any leader only goes so far, and this is ultimately our authority. This is what the Reformers preached. They believed in sola scriptura. Sola scriptura was designed to counter the Catholic doctrine sola ecclesia, which means church is the final authority, whereas the Reformers said, no, the Bible is the final authority, even over the church, to govern the church. So then lastly, it is also absolutely essential that we receive edification. Now, this is big. You want to talk about spiritual growth? It has to begin there. There has to be dealing with sin. There has to be a healthy relationship with the authority that God has put over you. And number three, there has to be the capacity to receive edification. Now, this works in two ways. This works in two ways. God gave apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers for one reason, 
and that is to build the church up. Oikodemia, it means to edify, and that's what we are for. That's our job. I think you should expect edification all over the church. You should expect to be edified in the time of worship, edified in the small group, edified in the Sunday school, edified during the preaching. You should be edified in the fellowship, in the body life, edified in the accountability with your brothers and sisters, your fellow members in the church. We should expect edification in the church. We are not to expect the church to be a, 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 just a, a time where we come and do rote rituals, where we just repeat re- things over and up, stand up, sit down, four songs, sit down. No, but we have to find our edification in that. And that is incumbent upon two things, the responsibility of the leaders and the receptivity of the members. Both go together. But first, let's begin with the negative Church leadership is not designed to destroy God's people. I mentioned the destructive model of some of these leaders in Mexico that were lording their authority over the church, going so far as to, in some cases, excommunicating people for years, even if they were repentant. They repented, and they would not embrace them back into the fellowship. That that is a clear example of spiritual abuse. And so Paul says, the purpose is not to tear you down. And he's already said that in chapter 10. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, because remember, Paul was being forced to boast by those that were boasting erroneously. He said, look, if, if, we, if we're going to get in a competition of boasting, I can boast a lot more. But he would boast in his weakness. But here he says that the Lord gave him that authority, once again, to build you up and not to destroy you, not to destroy you. So, positively, the authority that God has invested in me as a pastor, in his church, and in Paul as an apostle primarily, was to build the church up. I always ask people, they visit our church and they talk to me about where they've come from or what they're doing, and I ask them, are you growing where you're at? In the church, they, I, I heard what you said, your kids like it, they have good music, they have 101 programs that you could be a part of, but are you really spiritually growing? Are you learning at your church? Is there valuable accountability at your church? Is there meaningful fellowship at your church? That's what a church ought to be. That's what I hope Heritage Grace will become. The more we grow and the more we strive towards maturity, those are the features that have to be in our church. We have to have the ability to uh, produce joy. And I say that from 2 Corinthians. Turn with me there as we'll close. But 2 Corinthians 1.24, I think, captures the essence of this relationship perfect, perfectly. He says, not, not that we lord it over your faith, talking about his ministry, his ministry as an apostle. He says, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith, you are standing firm. Now, notice that this joy, that's what we all want, right? People go to a church, they typically go shopping for a church, and they walk into a church, and they say, okay, what can I get out of this? That I enjoy it here. 
Was it enjoyable? Was the worship good? Was the pastor funny? No, hopefully they're asking the right questions, right? Was it good preaching? Was it solid? Do they believe in the gospel? Do they have the preeminence of the word of God? That's what we really should be asking in a church. But notice that this is a cooperative joy. This is not a joy that stems merely from the magnetic personality of the preacher. It is not a joy that comes merely from the fact that, that you feel warmth and, or, or that the pastor's funny or that he's resourceful. No, my friends, it first comes from this. Whether or not he is effective in the ministry in producing the type of joy that is grounded in the faith that is grounded in the gospel, but it's cooperative in this, that if we do not avail ourselves to the ministry that God has put over us, then we miss the with you. You see that in the verse? With you. We are workers together with you. With. It's together. It's a joint uh, uh, adventure. It's, it's working together with the leadership that God's given you. Because the pastor can preach his guts out. He can study himself to death. He can labor. He can evangelize. He can counsel. He can teach and preach until he has nothing left. But if you do not avail yourself to the means of grace that God has put over you, then you are going to short-circuit the growth process. So we have to ask ourselves those hard questions. Is, are we availing ourselves to the means of grace? God has ordained a certain way for you to grow. Are you availing yourself for that? Or do you not participate? Or are you always absent? Or are you always distant? Or when the church gathers together, there's no participation on your part. If you have a track record of doing that, I will submit that you will have a track record of stunting your spiritual growth. And that's not God's will for us. Remember, I always mention this for church membership that membership should really be called partnership. We are partners. You have to come and contribute as well as the leadership does. You have to bring a willingness. You have to bring servanthood. You have to bring your gifts. You have to flourish in your gifts in the church. And that's not happening, then you will be lopsided and you will not grow. You will not be sanctified as you ought to be. But by God's grace... If those two components are there, the pastors are doing what they're supposed to be doing, preaching and teaching and leading and counseling and serving, and then the church is doing, the members are doing what they're supposed to be doing and availing themselves, not just listening, but doing, practicing, putting into practice, training, instructing in the family, in the home, in every area of the life. I'm telling you, you're going to have, that's a nuclear power for sanctification in the church. And so by God's grace, let's do that together every time we come together, not just coming to say, let's see what we're going to hear today. No, that's the wrong thing to come to the church with. You have to come with the church and say, what can I do for the church today? How can I serve? Who can I, who can I look out into the church and say, that person looks like they need ministry? How can, oh, the pastor will take care of that? No, no, it's not just the pastor's job. Remember what Ephesians says? What every joint supplies, what every member is doing. So I leave it to you to examine your own heart, your own life, and to say, what am I doing for the church? I do feel as if I just come show up and leave. I don't feel like I'm engaged in any meaningful ministry with anybody. 
And if that's the case, folks, then I say you need to examine your role in this church because there's nothing more important than your role in the local church. It doesn't matter what type of ministry you're involved in outside of the local church. I've emphasized this over and over. And this is exactly what's going on with Paul. They're listening to outside voices more than they're listening to the voice in their own church with their own pastor, with Paul. And say, look, where's your commitment? God has designed you to be a brick in his temple, the church. And if you do that, I promise you that you will be blessed by God and that you will grow spiritually. Father, Lord, I, I don't know of any greater need than for us after being saved than to be sanctified in your church. And we know, Lord, that you have ordained for us to grow in relationship to our church. Lord, and I can't do enough by sitting here and preaching and teaching and exemplifying if you do not work in all of us to want to do what Scripture calls us to do by following, by participating, by fellowshipping, by contributing to the needs of the saints, by rising up, as Scripture says, by rising up to meet pressing needs, by being there for one another, by holding each other accountable and being integrated in the life of the church, then, Lord, I know that spiritual growth will take place very, very slowly. But, Lord, we pray for the opposite to take place in our church. We pray that you would make us effective, not only leaders, but also members, that we would make the most of our time to redeem the time. The days are very evil. And so help us to be as effective as we can possibly be for your kingdom because we want to grow. We want to grow. And Father, for those in here that may not want to grow, maybe they're just comfortable where they're at. They're really, they say they want to grow, but they're all talk. They're unwilling to move out. They're unwilling to repent, repent of certain things. They're unwilling to change. They're unwilling to conform to your word. Oh God, by your grace, strengthen them to change. You affect the change in their life. You transform. You cause the transformation by the power of your spirit so that they don't have just a form of godliness, but that they would indeed experience the power thereof. Father, it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.